Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is in Luke 3, Repentance, Forgiveness, and Baptism. Got a Bible with you. You're going to need it. Should be one in the front of you, in the pew in front of you, underneath, or you got one on your phone. We're going to be together in Luke chapter 3, which is where we were last time. And uh, we don't make a lot of progress Sunday to Sunday, depending on where we are, but right now, not so much, because there's such foundational stuff happening here. The last time we were together, we had a brief introduction to John the Baptist, as he's called. Not a Presbyterian, not a Lutheran, not a Methodist, not an Assembly of God. <laughs> he was actually a prophet in the, in the class of Elijah, so he wasn't, I guess you could say, a Christian in that strict sense. Uh, uh, he's of the Old Testament people and of the Old Testament prophets, and let's Remind ourselves what we saw last time here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to get into verse 3 for the rest of our time together. It says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, and he goes on to name these seven terrible names that we looked at last time, these horrible people who were in charge of Israel, and Israel had not seen this oppression since Egypt, and yet they couldn't see how they were oppressed. They couldn't see their need for a Savior, and thus the purpose of John. Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and brother Philip was tetrarch of the real, had pieces of the pie, cut up Israel into four different pieces. In the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Remember, these guys were a real piece of work. They were horrible. Uh, they did their corruption, not, not any different than the corruption of these other people, but they did it in the name of God. There's nothing worse than that. It was in, at this time and under this conditions and this backdrop, it says there in verse 2, that the word of God came to John. He gets his start. Go, preach. The son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And like I said, we were introduced to him last time. We're going to go further today. I remember the picture I put up last time of uh, my interpretation of what he looked like. And of course, that's not an actual picture. But John was one of few in the Bible whose hair was never cut. If you read carefully, you'll find out he was raised under the same circumstances as Samson was, as Samuel was. So what would it look like for a man in his 30 years old who's never had his hair cut from birth? I don't know. I'm thinking pretty bushy, pretty shaggy. Plus, he grows up in the wilderness. Uh, there are no showers out there of any kind. Uh, it's an ugly place. I'm going to show you some pictures in just a second. He eats this stuff, um, grasshoppers. And that's repulsive to you. Like I said last time, if you eat shrimp, there's not hardly a hair's difference between them. One's above the water and one's below the water, and they eat about the same kind of stuff. In fact, shrimp is more of a scavenger than a grasshopper. Grasshoppers eat nice, clean grass and stuff. Um, they were not called grasshoppers. They were called locusts. Anybody here from the south, I mean, from the true south, not that you migrated there, I'm talking about south of the Mason-Dixon, really southern coast of, of Texas and, and uh, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, where I grew up, that was, we called that a grasshopper. We called this a locust. And that is not, we were lied to, guys. What else are they not telling us? These are not locusts. These are cicadas. But it, my child concept, growing up in church all my life, and I'd hear John the Baptist eating locusts, I was thinking, so he got up in the trees? Those things are hard to catch. <laughs> and I was trying to picture that. I was thinking, well, they are kind of loud. Maybe you should eat them. And I was thinking, oh, really crunchy. And if you ever had one of those hit your windshield driving down the road, man, they're like a rock. Those things are serious. That's what he ate. Uh, typically, they would dry them in the sun. They would salt them a little bit, and um, you're starving. They're pretty good. Um, I've not eaten one, just in case you're wondering. They are uh, part of the kosher list in your Old Testament. The Jews were allowed to eat these, along with crickets and similar uh, 
similar, similar creatures. So they're not nasty. They are to you. But they were not to John, especially if you had nothing else. And so he was in the region where this was. This is the Jordan River. This is an actual picture of the Jordan River. I don't know what you thought of what you thought the Jordan River looked like. But it, it doesn't, from where I'm from, it doesn't class as a river. The rivers where I'm from were close to 400 yards wide. Every time I read the Bible, every time I heard the River Jordan, I was thinking, that's what I thought. I thought of locusts with the things in the trees, and I thought the River Jordan. Now, that's a ditch where I'm from. <laughs> the, river, the River Jordan, for the most part, and most of the year in Israel, is nothing little more than a glorified ditch. Uh, more muddy than you can imagine. The first time this year we got to baptize, this past time we went, we got to go to the place, the actual place where John was baptizing, where Jesus was baptized, in the same place where the children of Israel crossed the River Jordan when they came to the Promised Land originally. Where we typically go when we go to Israel, we go to the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, which is right where it comes out of the Sea of Galilee. It's nice clean water. It's warmed by the sun. It's really a gorgeous place. There's fish in the water. You, you would think if God was creating a place for baptism that that would be the spot. Well, think again. This is where they were baptizing. Uh, nothing, it's nothing more than liquid mud, literally. Like you put your hand in the water and you put an inch below the water and you cannot see your hand. I mean, it's just that, that silty. And it's, it flows through. It looks green and lush there, but it's only because of the water of that river. Everything else around it looks like this. This is the wilderness where John has spent 30 years. And it's a trackless wilderness. It's an ugly place. And, and you'd be, gra grasshoppers were uh, awesome uh, if, if uh, you live there, I would think. Uh, no, no, no HEB and no um, Uber um, uh, meals uh, being delivered to you in a place like that. So, so John is an unusual person. Um, never drinks wine in a culture where everyone did, including children, because you had no way to purify water except for the addition of alcohol. Uh, you just didn't. Uh, he never did. Uh, never cut his hair as part of his vow. Uh, living like a wild man. Started his prophetic ministry in utero. We talked about that. Jesus' mother walks in the room. He's inside of his mom, uh, Elizabeth, and the, he leaps inside of his mother's womb, indicating that here's the Messiah. He starts pointing to the Christ before he's ever born. So an amazing guy, this guy. And had an amazing ministry, uh, born with great promise. Uh, Luke 1 tells us this promise the angel makes to Zacharias, his father. He, John, will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power of Elijah. I mean, he was a very powerful prophet. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so not sure what you thought of or what you're thinking of when you think of the ministry of John, but I want to underscore this for you. It was very short. So John starts his ministry. He's six months older than Jesus. He starts his ministry at 30. Jesus starts his ministry at 30, six months later. Tells us in the scriptures that as soon as Jesus starts his ministry, John's ministry begins to fade. So a year, maybe, maybe less until he's arrested by Herod Archelaus for preaching against him and his, his adulterous wife. And then within a short period of time, he's gone. So very short ministry to accomplish these things. And he did it all, but it was certainly a flash. Very short-lived, but very powerful ministry as according to what it says here in Mark 1 and other places. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to John, to that place, to see that guy? Yep. Confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. How did he do that? 
It's sort of a quandary of the story of the ministry of John the Baptist when you throw it up against modern models for how you build churches and how you reach people and uh, bring them into church. Uh, the John model is never presented. Here's the model that's presented to us that we believe, that we've swallowed. And um, so the John model is sort of a slap in the face the way we think people ought to be reached today. And I would suggest to you, since it is a slap in the face, that we probably need to be slapped. What we think of church, its leadership, the, the way church ought to be. Uh, John was very effective, and he had none of the things that we believe in or, or that we think uh, work. As an example, here's some things. He didn't build any great buildings. I showed you the pictures. They were going out there to stand in that kind of sun, in that kind of environment all day to listen to that kind of guy preach these kind of sermons. Hmm. Neither did he have a choir with, uh, that was world-renowned, nor a worship leader with a record deal. We think we got to have that today. Well, that's what's wrong. You're not reaching people because you don't have the right worship leader. You don't have a good choir. You don't. John didn't have any of that. Didn't have any of it. Like I said, it's a slap in the face to us, it seems, but we, I think we need to be slapped. Uh, didn't have all kinds of letters after his names, like PhDs, and we think preachers got to have that. We put it on there. I have that. And um, because we feel like somehow it legitimizes their ministries. So, so he's got all kinds of letters after his names, like LLD and PhD and H2SO4, any chemist here? <laughs> of what good is that? What does that tell us about him? That he can go to school. Is that who we want? That's not who I want as my pastor. That's not who I'm looking for. I'm looking for a man who's, who's got the hand of God on him. I'm looking at a man who can walk every day with God. That's the person I want to listen to. I mean, we all agree with that, don't we? And yet when we get our resumes up, and, and I'm not leaving this church, by the way, and I may be dead tomorrow, I may have to look for another pastor, but here's I'm giving you my advice right now. Quit thinking like the world. This stuff is a slap in the face, and we need to be slapped. We, we've forgotten what, what really works here. It's not buildings, and it's not people with qualifications. And, and adding to this, he wasn't a pretty boy either, was he? Never shaved in his life, never cut his hair. Woo! It's not exactly your preacher that gets to put up on a billboard in front of your Baptist church, you know, in any modern, modern, these gigantic churches that we have. Which, by the way, all these things are fine. I mean, you can have a pretty boy, and you can have a nice facility, and you can have a great choir, and a worship leader with a record deal, and there's nothing wrong with those things. The wrongness of it is saying we have to have them. We've lost. We've lost our focus on what God, this is, church is God's. If we want to make it in our own image, well then, yeah, we're probably going to need that stuff. But if we really want it to work God, we need to be worried about his hand being honest and upon our ministry, and honestly, nothing else. He can lead us into all those other things, but they're superfluous. And by the way, he wasn't also, neither was he well-located. Another thing, you'll go to a church growth group, and they'll ask you, they'll tell you as you build a church, make sure you build it in the right place. Was John in the right place? I mean, he was in the right place because that's where God told him to go, but the wilderness is not exactly location, 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 you know, as they tell you, you know, make sure people can see you from the highway and all this, your sign is all good and all that. And, and like I said, there, it's fine to have that stuff, but to think that you have to have that stuff is a huge mistake. John didn't have any of it. So, and let me also underscore this. Uh, a successful ministry is not measured by people, even though John had them. He had the numbers, didn't he? That is not the measure of success. Measure of success is that you did what God told you to do, when and how he told you to do it, 
and nothing more. We don't convert people. We don't save people. We don't gather people. God does that. We're trusting him. We're trusting his Holy Spirit. We're trusting the power of his word. We're not trusting in anything else. We start majoring on these minor issues. The, the major issues start becoming something, oh yeah, we forgot about having to pray. We forgot about having to trust God. We forgot about a, a man truly led by God as being our leader. And um, that's some serious things to forget. So what did John do? Well, it's lined out very simply here. Not only was John not a looker, he also wasn't in the classical modern idea. He wasn't much of a preacher. Only had one sermon. Watch. Verse 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching, this is all he preached, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Every Sunday. I should say, every day. Only a one-liner. Preached the same thing. By the way, have you ever listened to Billy Graham more than once? Listen to his sermons from the time he starts preaching in the 50s all the way he starts, stops preaching when he's too old. Billy Graham's a one-liner. Pretty much the same message that John preaches. Repent, accept Christ, be baptized over and over and over again. Why? Because that's the message, guys. And, and the world's not getting it. And if we move on to some other message when they haven't got it, well, then we've left them. And uh, God is certainly not in favor of that. So let's go back and look at some of these, these elements of what, God, uh, what God led John to preach here. And let's consider them and apply them in our lives. First one is the forgiveness. I'm going to do them in the reverse order, but in the order, I believe, of importance. First one is the forgiveness of sins. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it says there. Mankind's single greatest problem is sin. It is your greatest problem. It is my greatest problem. It is the greatest problem in our world. It's a problem with our politics. It's a problem with our foreign policy. It's a problem with our hometowns. It's a problem with our families. It's a problem with our marriages. It's a problem with our health. I mean to say this. I said this early service. Are you saying because a person sinned that they're now sick? I didn't say that, but I could have been interpreted that way, and so I want to make it very clear I'm not saying that. I, I, not, that not that you can't do something sinful and wind up being sick because of it. I'm not saying that that isn't true. There's obviously many examples, but all sickness is related to sin. And it may not be your sin, it may not be your parents' sin, but somebody's sin back there that has brought the illness and sickness and death and dis deformity and all the horrible things that we experience today. This is not the way God created it. It is the way we've created it in our image because of our sin. So yes, it is related to sin. All problems are. You take away sin, uh, there will be no need for CNN or Fox News or anything else. You don't have to have, there's nothing to report on anymore. There's no problems or issues anymore. Sin is our greatest problem, and so the single message of the gospel is our single greatest need, which is forgiveness of sins. God is willing to forgive the sins of anyone who will come to him in the way that he prescribes. That is good news. Our greatest problem is sin, our greatest need is forgiveness, and God is offering that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a it is good news in every respect of that word. Mankind's greatest problem is sin. Mankind's second greatest problem is realizing that he is a sinner. That's our next greatest problem. Our greatest problem is sin, but our next problem is we don't, wanna, we don't believe it. Oh, it's nothing. It's education. We just need to be educated. It's housing. It's better health. It's, you know, it's the government. It's this and that. It's, um, I don't know, whatever else we blame it on. No, it's sin and your need for forgiveness. And somebody needs to tell you. So there you are. 
It is sin and our need for forgiveness, and our greatest problem is agreeing with God on that topic. Our second greatest problem. Greatest problem is sin, second greatest problem is agreeing with God on it. That I am a sinner and that I need to be forgiven. Have you ever gotten there? You gotta get there, or hear me, you can't be saved. You can't be saved because of what, uh, no person comes to a savior unless they believe they need to be rescued, you see. If you're not a person that believes you're in a position of needing to be rescued, you'll never come to the Savior. I can guarantee it. That's why the Bible's set up with old news, Old Testament, bad news, good testament, good news. It's in that order. You, you have to understand the bad news or the good news makes no sense. You have to understand that I am a person in need of being saved before a Savior. It ring, doesn't ring true, you see. You tell me you're a Savior, I think I'm fine. I'm thinking you need to go with somebody else because I'm fine. And by the way, that's exactly the way the Jews were. They've been raised in a culture that taught about sin and forgiveness, and yet, do they believe it? So Jesus shows up on the scene, and, and he says, you know, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, and they respond like this. We are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been slaves to anyone. Holy cow, what kind of hole was their heads in? <laughs> so these seven terrible people who were controlling and slicing up their land, all Gentiles, all pagans, they had, they had no rights, no authority, no ability, no freedom, and yet they say baloney like this. What a joke. It's the same attitude, by the way, you hear in the sinners in our world today, and I can honestly say it, it could be placed at the feet of our churches because we don't preach repentance. We don't preach sin. Sin, sin and repentance have fallen on hard times in our culture. Again, for the same reason that we wouldn't ever elect John as our pastor of our church. Because, oh, he's ugly. He doesn't have a good location. He doesn't have a choir or a music director doesn't have any LLDs or H2SO4s after his name. We don't hire him. Uh, shame on us. Uh, the joke's on us. These, these guys thought they were fine, and they were far from fine. How can you say that we shall be set free? Wow. Talking to the Savior, and yet they realize they, they didn't think they needed to be saved. That's the problem with our world. Again, classically illustrated in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 4. If you're with us throughout the rest of this uh, wintertime, you're winter Texans, or it doesn't matter if you're, if you're off from work or whatever, you want to come with us on every Tuesday, we're having Bible study here, 9 o'clock. Every single Tuesday. Started last week, we're looking at the, the um, parables of Luke. And this is going to be one of the parables we look at. It's called the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the, the tax collector. We're going to be getting in-depth into this. Such a powerful message. We want to invite you to be sometime in February when we, by the time we get to this one. But, but uh, such a powerful, powerful illustration. You can basically divide the world upon the division that you find within this parable. Watch what Jesus says. He says, two men. It's an example. It's a story. It's not reality. It's just a story to make a biblical point, a theological point. Two men went to a temple to pray, and Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers and even like this tax collector, but the tax collector, you need to decide, by the way, which one of these guys you are. Because you're in one of, these, one of these two groups. Can't be in both. The tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. Beat his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus' commentary, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. One, because of his humility and repentance, is available for God's salvation. The other one just simply is not. And if he does not change his attitude, he's going to hell. And by the way, if that's you, so are you. So are you. This is the message that John brought. The message of repentance. 
The message of the need for forgiveness, the need to agree with God about our sinful nature and our sinful situation and unable to redeem ourselves and the need for a Savior. This is the message that John preached over and over and over again. This message of repentance, it was his mainstay. The Jewish people had everything, they, as far as you could have, spiritually speaking. They, they knew the, who the true God was. Uh, they, they had his word. Uh, they were a guide to those who did not know nothing about God. They had in the embodiment of the law the knowledge of, of the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. And yet they had no power to keep that law. They, they had no power to, to, to actually accomplish it, and their hearts didn't belong to God. And so John comes to them and says, "It doesn't matter." Here, here what he says here: It doesn't matter that you're Abraham's descendants. It doesn't matter. Look, look, look at look at how, like I said, none of our churches would hire him because he'd run everybody off. Look at verse seven. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. You heard that from your preacher lately? <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's just shooting straight. What good is it if we make them kind, we make them feel good about themselves and they step out of this life straight into hell? What have we done for them? We've encouraged them and taught them about self-esteem and, and how to be good to others. And they step out of this life and go into hell. We have not helped them. It's not the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church is the truth, and John has given them the truth. Therefore bring forth fruit, verse eight, in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, here's, notice, he's gotta talk them out of this, that we have Abraham for our fathers, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Think you're special because you're Jewish. You're not. Forget it. You have nothing to offer. You have nothing. He's bringing them to the place of repentance. You have everything and you don't have forgiveness in order to have the things. And, and what's standing between you and forgiveness is repentance. The same thing that's standing between you and I. If we haven't been forgiven, listen, it's because you haven't repented. How, how can you say what's true about Jesus if you're not willing to say what's true about yourself? You can't. How can you agree with God about his Savior if you want to agree about your need to be saved? We can't get you to the Savior until you agree you need to be saved. You're out there drowning in the water with throwing a life preserver to you. You're just throwing it back. I don't need that. I'm swimming just fine. No, you're not. We know what happens to the people out there. Repentance stood between them and forgiveness, and, and that is why repentance was the theme of all the prophets of the Old Testament, including John, an Old Testament prophet, and also that of Jesus. So John preached repentance, watch Jesus. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. He only got, he just got John's sermon and kept going with it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come to here. Again, Luke 5. I'm not come to call the righteous because there aren't any. But sinners to repentance. Will you confess that you're a sinner? Will you admit who you really are? Will you agree with God about your situation? That is biblical repentance. Luke 13, 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I would say repentance is a big deal. Jesus certainly would, sir, with John. Repentance stood between them and forgiveness. It's what stands between us if we haven't been forgiven. Repentance is a, listen, is a repudiation of a person's old life, calling it what God calls it, agreeing with God about your sinful situation. It's an, here's an attitude of repentance. It's where I say, I no longer treasure my sin. Ever been there? I don't love it anymore. I, I don't want it anymore. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I hate my sin and I resent the way that I am. 
It's, it's a turning away from what we are naturally and conditionally and, and uh, uh, in, in practice. Uh, I want to be delivered from sin and from sin's power. And it's also the realization that you cannot change that situation. It's not a, re, biblical repentance of a sinner is not where the person comes and says, I'm going to clean my life up so God will save me. No, not at all. A sinner, by definition, cannot change your situation. That's why the Savior died, guys. The Savior died because a, a, a leopard can't change his spots. He can just simply say, I recognize that I'm a leopard. I, I recognize that I'm, that I'm washed up. I recognize that I'm bankrupt. I recognize that, I, that I'm in need of a Savior, but I can't save myself. I can't change myself. I'm not, it's not a, I'm going to go fix my life so God will save me. No, no, never, no way. That's not the repentance of salvation. It has nothing to do with changing your condition. Repentance is a correct assessment of your condition. That's all a sinner can do. All he can say is, I'm washed up. All he can say is, I'm bankrupt. But, hear me, he needs to say it. He needs to say it. He needs to know it. Why would he cry out for a Savior if he has no feelings of needing to be saved? Why would he cry out for mercy and, and for grace when he has no feel, feels no real felt need for those things, you see? And so our job as Christians is to show him that way. No, the, the gospel, listen, is very offensive. Not need for you to be offensive. But the gospel is very offensive. And indeed it is. It, it's not, it has nothing to do with your changing your, your condition, which, by the way, it's just confessing what your true condition is. By the way, which your true condition is hopeless outside of Christ. Hopeless. Again, John wouldn't get hired in our churches because John didn't preach our, our um, love yourself and your neighbor and um, um, the self-esteem sermons that we get anymore. John says, no, you are the greatest problem in your life. You are a sinner. You are condemned by God. And here we have in churches say, well, you can't condemn sinners. They won't come to your church. They're already condemned, y'all. We're not doing them any favors. They're already condemned by God. Somebody needs to tell them. Repentance is a complete surrender and throwing oneself on the mercy of God, and that is what John was preaching, and that is what Jesus is preaching, and that is what any gospel ministry preaches. It has to. Else we deviate from the scriptures, which is a massive problem. So, so first of all, the forgiveness of sins, and then that of repentance, and then this whole thing of the, what he's known for is this baptism of repentance. What was that? This was the test. So John's standing in the wilderness, and they've come out there to gawk at him. They come out there to check this guy out. There's rumors running around town. He's preaching the same sermon as he preached last time, as he preached next time. Now the push comes to shove. Have you really repented? See, it's easy for us, and we have in Baptist churches, and we classically in many churches have what we call altar calls, and we have other things where we call for people to have, make a public commitment. The reason why we do that is so that because there are people up in Dallas who are writing down numbers, and we got to report numbers to them, and that's the reason why we do it. No. <laughs> the reason why we call people to public commitment, because that's exactly what Jesus and John did. Public commitment, because there's a lot of fakers out there. And even the public ones can be fake. But you, you weed them out quite a bit when you start saying, it has to be public. What is baptism? It is a public declaration of whose side that you are on. Repentance is a personal thing. It's something I do in my heart. It's something between me and God and, and seeking for forgiveness. That's, that's a decision. I mean, as soon as I make that decision and accept Christ, I don't lose weight. 
I don't change, I don't know, complexion. I don't get like this aura around my head. Or How are people going to know? I don't get yanked up to heaven immediately either. How is the world going to know that my life has changed when I'm only a second ago was unsaved and now I'm saved? Jesus says, and John says, that's why you must make it public. He doesn't leave it for us on how to inventions of what that is. The, the description of the scriptures of how I publicly make known my decision to follow Christ is a thing called baptism. It was, it was the way John made people publicly demonstrate that they had come to a place of repentance. Baptism. He would take them in the muddy river, the picture I showed you, and he would immerse them in the water in front of everybody. Now, did it do anything for them? No. Baptism doesn't do anything. It's not what it does. You just got in, a, you just got in the muddy water. That's what it does for you. It's what it says. Baptism both then and now is not, a, it's not something done. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's what it says. It says whose side you're on. Listen, Jesus requires you to choose a side publicly in this life. Have you done that? The Savior who hung naked on the cross for you, for your sins, and took the nails for you publicly, he did those things, has asked you to publicly acknowledge him as being your personal Savior. I would say that's the least he could ask. That's the least. I, I recognize my spiritual bankruptcy and I cannot save myself and I'm throwing myself on the mercies of God and that's what John says. If you really believe that, then come get in the water. And, and, and here's the thing. Now, baptism, of course, we're talking to preaching to the choir here. It should be over there, but here you are. And we're all from... Baptist backgrounds, and I know you're from Lutheran and Methodist and Presbyterian and all kinds. We all baptize, don't we? So it's a common thing for us, and we've many of us here have been baptized. Hopefully, all of us here have been have been scripturally baptized. And so it's something where we're like, oh yeah, yeah, what's the big deal? It was a big deal for them because the baptism that John was asking them to do was a baptism that they had never done. Now they had baptism in Jewish circles, but it was a self immersion. And it was something that simply said, I've gotten myself dirtied by the world. I'm okay, but the world isn't. And the dirtiness of the world, I'm immersing myself and separating myself from it in order as a Jew to come and worship God. It wasn't repentance. It was, it was repenting for the world's sake. You know, They're all bad people over there, and I'm leaving all them because I'm awesome. And so here I am, God, aren't you glad I'm here kind of thing. That is not what John's calling him to do. What John is calling him to do, an immersion, listen, an immersion for repentance is the kind of thing that they did for only Gentiles. So a Gentile like myself comes and says, I want to be right with the real God and I want to unite myself with the real people of God. I would be immersed, but it would be a baptism, an immersion of repentance. My old life Everything about it, all that I taught, all that I believed, all that I thought was going to get me to heaven or whatever I believed in, I'm, I'm turning against that or repudiate all that stuff. And I'm now coming and being completely changed. And as a sign and a symbol of that, I'm immersing or allowing myself to be immersed. John was calling them to a Gentile's repentance. That's a big pill to swallow for a bunch of Jews. That's a ton of humility. By the way, that is what repentance is. You're really humble, well then you'll humble yourself to this. You really say, I'm not faking, well then, here you go. Here's your option. Here, here's the dividing thing, and I've, I found it very interesting, even though uh, 
Baptism doesn't do anything, doesn't save anything. It really is a dividing line. You show me a person who's not willing to get baptized, and I have great doubts about their salvation. Not that it matters. God's not calling me and says, Bill, who's saved? I don't know. But I have my suspicions. You're unwilling to be obedient to Christ and the discipleship call he's got for you, naming yourself as belonging to him publicly in this world through a thing called baptism. And I'm thinking you haven't come to a place of repentance. Just a thought. A couple of stories. Pastor here in Texas by the name of Jim Dennison, now a longtime pastor. When he was in college, he was a summer missionary in a place called Eastern Malaysia. And he was there at a worship service, and at the end of that service, they were going to have a baptismal, and you know, they were the standard church. I know our doesn't have a baptismal because we've got the whole Gulf of Mexico for that. But uh, they had a baptismal in their church, and people were in the line on this side of the church coming down to be baptized in order. And there was a lady, young lady, in the line carrying two suitcases. Marching down. This one baptized, and this one baptized. A little lady comes with her, sets her bags down, climbs in the baptismal water. She's baptized, gets back out, towels off, takes her suitcases, walks down the back, the back of the church. He's watching the whole time. He's never been to a, been to a lot of baptismals, but never been to one where they carried a suitcase. So he asked the pastor later, he says, oh, oh, that's a common thing. He said, what was common? She said, uh, that, that little girl lives at home with her parents, and her parents told her that it was fine for her to go to that church, and it was fine for her to listen to the preaching of that church, but if she was ever baptized... She shouldn't ever think that she's allowed to come back home ever again. Public declaration of who you are. Has Jesus called us to be 007 secret agents of his? No. Publicly. Owning the Savior. He publicly died for you. We're to publicly own him. Own who he is. Here, here's a, a good Texan story and a good, um, since we're all caught up in politics, story. Familiar with the name Lyndon Baines Johnson? He was a Texan. Did you vote for him? You bunch of liars. Because <laughs> we have a lot of dead people in Texas that voted for him too, and they, we couldn't get them to fess up either. Not very far from here, Duval County is where the famous dead people voted for Lyndon Baines Johnson anyway to be senator. Uh, Lyndon, Lyndon what came was whoever you think he is, and I have an opinion about him too, but Lyndon Baines Johnson, of course, president of the United States, his Great-grandfather, did you know this, was a well-known Texas gospel preacher. Very accurate, very solid guy. Um, among his achievements as a pastor and as an evangelist, he had a, a notch in his belt that went to a guy by the name of General Sam Houston. He's the one that led General Sam Houston to the Lord in East Texas in Huntsville area where Sam Houston uh, had his homestead. General Sam Houston is the guy who won Texas independence from Santa Ana and defeated him in San Jacinto when we were a republic for a while, and you know all that story, right? Remember the Alamo and all that. Well, Sam Houston wasn't there, but he followed up after that. Sam Houston was a rough guy. He came to the West because the East wouldn't have him, you know. He was a rough guy and not a Christian and uh, was hard to reach, and his heart was hard to reach. And a guy by the name of not Lyndon Baines, but Baines Johnson witness to him, accepted Christ, and he was baptized in a little church over there in East Texas. The story goes that when he came up out of the water, he announced several things that were going to change about his life, including, he says, I'm paying half the pastor's salary, whatever it is. And they were, his wife and several people said, why are you going to do that? He says, well, when I got baptized, my wallet got baptized too, he said. <laughs> Everything changed for him, and that's the way it ought to be. You come to Christ, you're obedient to him, You've been into a weird thing called baptism? Well, guess what? It's a small thing for your wallet and everything else to go in the direction 
uh, that, you want him, that, that he wants us to go. Discipleship, that's what it is. Life, life changing because God is the one that changes. Repentance isn't changing your life. It's coming to the one who can change your life. The one who loves you, who gave himself for you. Have you humbled yourself? Have you come to the Savior? I'm going to ask if you would to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we come to a conclusion this morning thinking about what God has said to us. God, we're so grateful for John the Baptist and for his faithfulness. And we're ashamed because of maybe our idea of what a successful ministry and what a minister ought to look like and what his background ought to be and where he ought to live and where he ought to preach and what he ought to preach. We've misconstrued so many things and we've forgotten that it's nothing other than dependence upon you and being obedient to you and success is never numbers. It's just obedience to you. And God, we're also reminded of the power of his ministry and what he taught and the great need that we have in this culture for the recognition that we need to be forgiven. We're washed up sinners hell-bound, apart from Christ. And our society doesn't see it, and they don't hardly hear it anymore, it seems. God, forgive us. God, give us the courage to teach and preach the truth. And God, we pray that as you bless John, so you would bless us with, with the experience of seeing people's lives change, people publicly acknowledging uh, their faith in your son Jesus through baptism. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, this great, uh, great story and this great message, God, that comes from it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.